Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello, and welcome to the interview series, New Books in African American Studies, where writers and scholars of African American life, arts, culture, and sciences discuss their new books. I'm your host, Vershawn Young, and today I had the opportunity to speak with Deborah Elizabeth Whaley about her wonderful new book, Disciplining Women, Alpha Kappa Alpha, Black Counterpublics, and the Cultural Politics of Black Sororities. Deborah's book is an ethnographic study of the black Greek letter sorority Alpha Kappa Alpha, and it just might be the first full-length study of a black Greek letter organization done by a non-Greek letter organization member. That alone gives Professor Whaley a unique insight onto the subject matter, and it explains also why she's interested in it. Let's listen in. Hello, Deborah. Hello. Today we are talking to Deborah Elizabeth Whaley, the author of Disciplining Women, Alpha Kappa Alpha, Black Counterpublics, and the Cultural Politics of Black Sororities, published by SUNY, State University of New York Press, 2010. This book is an interdisciplinary book-length study of black Greek letter sororities and Greek letter organizations with a focus on the Alpha Kappa Alpha a fraternal organization. As a child of the 80s, I remember school days and in some ways um, was very interested in the intracultural racial dynamics that uh, Spike Lee depicted in the film. And although I haven't yet uh, seen the film Stomp the Yard, which Deborah analyzes in chapter one, along with school days, your analysis uh, leads me to want to go and see the film just to reminisce about childhood and some of the things that I missed since I also did not pledge uh, a fraternity. Deborah, we're so glad that you're on the show today. And I was wondering if you could start by telling us a little bit about yourself. Sure. So I was born in Wheat Ridge, Colorado, and uh, lived in Wheat Ridge and Denver, Boulder, and Broomfield for my formative younger years, and I was mostly raised in the Bay Area of California, San Jose, California. I did my uh, undergraduate degree at uh, UC Santa Cruz and in American Studies, and then I went on to graduate school to California State University Fullerton and did a Master's of Arts in American Studies, and then I went on to do a PhD in American Studies at the University of Kansas. Nice, and tell us a little bit about your parents. So my uh, father uh, is a professor. He uh, teaches at San Jose State University, and um, my mother is a nurse. She has since retired, and, um, of course, they uh, live in California, uh, as I said, where I was mostly raised, but they are originally from Arizona, Tucson, Arizona, and Yuma, Arizona. 
And right now, you're an associate professor in both the American Studies Department and African American Studies Program at the University of Iowa. I am. Where we were both colleagues at one point. That was really we, fun. <laughs> we were. We were. And we greatly miss you. Thank you. So, Deborah, let's start talking about this um, provocative and interesting uh, study on the Alpha Kappa Alpha sorority. Can you tell us how you came to the topic? Sure. It started out as a series of papers that I wrote when I was in college. And you mentioned school days at the onset of the interview. And after uh, school days came out, you know, I had many of the types of things that Spike Lee presents in school days. I had some of the sort of same impressions insofar as one of the things the film does is to try to lay bare some of the problematic aspects of these organizations. And as an outsider to black Greek life, I had similar impressions as the sort of dark side of sororities and fraternities that Spike Lee presents. But I also had a unique position insofar as I was an outsider, but I was also an insider because my father is in the African-American fraternity. My sister is in the African-American sorority. A large number of my family members are in black Greek letter sororities and fraternities. So in some ways, I'm an insider. So after that film came out, I knew enough about the organizations to know that the types of depictions he presented were erroneous. They were um, problematic. They were stereotypical. There are issues um, around class. Um, that exists in these organizations, as well as various modes of distinction, not that they're particular just to black Greek-led organizations, you know, things like um, intra-class color prejudice is something that permeates all facets of black life, as well as all facets of American life. Um, but, you know, depending on the region and the chapter and the particular university, some of the things that he depicted in the film um, in terms of these modes of distinction and even issues of pledging and hazing um, are uh, something that uh, you will sort of see in the um, modern-day Greek letter fraternity in sorority. Can I ask you about some of the terminology that you use in the book um, uh, to clarify for some of our, our listeners. I actually use the word fraternal to refer to um, the AKA sorority in the opening remarks because you use the uh, term fraternal um, yes. to refer to them. Can you clarify that? Yeah, absolutely. So a fraternal organization just um, refers to an organizing um, body of um, women and or men. And so when we say fraternal organization, that refers to um, both sororal organizations as well as fraternal organizations. Um, that being said, there's different types of fraternal organizations. So in some ways you can think of the term fraternal as the sort of meta descriptor. And then to be more specific, there are social fraternal organizations, right, that are not Greek letter sororities or Greek letter fraternities. Um, so, for example, there are organizations such as the Masons or Order of the Eastern Star, right? So these are fraternal organizations, both um, men, uh, men membership and female membership organizations 
that um, are also fraternal. And then Greek letter societies are also fraternal organizations. Excellent. Uh, before we get into the meat of the book, I want to talk a little bit about context, and that context includes some more terminology um, that you nicely spell out for the reader, uh, I think, in the introduction and throughout the book, such as what cultural politics are or the black counterpublics. Um, and I was wondering if you might want to speak to those terms uh, right now. The other thing I wanted to ask um, is... Uh, uh, the way in which this book represents your discipline of American studies and African-American studies. Sure. Well, let me talk about the book as a product of American studies scholarship, and then I'll go into more detail about the organizing theoretical principles of the book, um, which, as you mentioned, does focus on the idea of the black sorority as a counterpublic formation and as an organization that engages in various types of cultural politics, both um, progressive and um, in, in some ways um, not as progressive, depending on historical moment and context in university, uh, etc. So I am an American Studies scholar. As I mentioned in my introduction when you were asking about my background, all of my degrees are in American Studies. And I think what makes this book unique in comparison to other books out on the topic is that it is interdisciplinary, and that is really one of the pinnacles of American Studies scholarship. And by interdisciplinary, I mean that I engage in um, various disciplines and lenses in which to look at black sorority life. So I have a historical chapter where I'm walking through the beginnings of the organization and their social and political platforms. And so the beginning of the book really tries to situate the sorority in American history and in black history and to think about how culture changes over historical time through this case study. And then I move into other lenses that allows me to engage in additional disciplines outside of the historical. For example, I have a chapter on stepping, which looks at uh, performance mm -hmm. and dance and the way in which black sorority women perform their identity through this cultural form known as stepping. Mm -hmm. And I also talk about film. Uh, you mentioned school days. I do talk about the film school days, and I compare it to Stomp the Yard, and I try to disentangle how the sorority is um, depicted in the film and then how these organizations really sort of function in everyday life and culture. In the book, I have a really sort of a smaller discussion of school days, but in another book titled The Legacy and the Vision, um, African-American Sororities and Fraternities, I have a chapter in this anthology edited by Gregory Parks and um, Tamara Brown, and I go more in-depth into the film School Days. It really is a close analysis of the film and talking about, you know, some of the stereotypes in the film and then how those stereotypes do not 
present real life and then how some of what he talks about, um, you know, you do sort of see permeating in various aspects of black Greek life. So I really take up uh, school days in more detail in another book. But in my book, I just sort of begin by um, talking about popular culture representations of black Greek letter organizations. Um, and I talk about not only the representations, but the lack of representation of black sororities, which is to say we do have films like School Days and Stomp Yard that try to remark upon the various aspects of these organizations, both cultural and social, and to a smaller extent political, but African-American sororities are really sort of underrepresented or marginalized in those popular culture depictions. So I'm looking at popular culture in the book. Another interdisciplinary aspect is my um, sort of using my ethnographic work to talk about the pledge process mm-hmm. and hazing. A large amount of my book was based upon oral interviews, oral histories, and um, observation at step shows and talking to pledges as well as existing sorority members about their pledge experiences, the regrets over hazing. So I'm pulling together all these different sources and disciplines to present what I hope is a full, complex look at black sorority life in particular, but also of uh, black history and cultural practices and the way in which uh, people of African descent perform identity through social political organizations in general. Nice. So I'm going to engage in a little bit of performance right now and ask you to respond. Uh, Are you ready? Sure. Yes, <laughs> that is the Alpha Kappa Alpha signature call that you will hear during step shows and step performance. And you will also hear that sound across campuses when uh, women who are in Alpha Kappa Alpha are trying to um, speak to or um, get the attention of other women in the organization. It becomes this sort of way to have a shared common language, and uh, that's why it's referred to as the signature call, because it's this verbal utterance that the women use to recognize each other and to speak to each other. Mm. Uh, Can you tell us how your book differs from uh, Paula Giddings' book on the the deltas, uh, you know, besides the subject matter, or uh, Majority Parker's book on the AKA? Yes. So uh, you mentioned uh, Paul Giddings' book on Delta Sigma Theta in Search of Sisterhood, which was really the first book on black sororities. Um, Marjorie Parker also has written on Alpha Kappa Alpha, um, but the work of Marjorie Parker is um, a very important historical 
work, um, but it was work that was solicited by the sorority and is an internal publication of the sorority. Mm. So Marjorie Parker acted as Alpha Kappa Alpha's official historian um, for a large part of the 20th century. And so she published an updated uh, a historical book that sort of chronicled the um, work that they did in um, civil rights and various types of uh, social justice social justice endeavors. And the Paula Giddings book on Delta Sigma Theta, um, although Delta Sigma Theta did also ask Paula Giddings to write the book, um, what differentiates the Paula Giddings book from the work of Marjorie Parker is uh, while solicited from Delta Sigma Theta, she did intend for the book to serve a larger purpose as a book of black women's history, of black history, and to sort of think about how the black sorority really remarks upon black history and American life more generally. So both of those authors were really uh, fundamental to my own work, um, both, you know, Marjorie Parker's um, really well-detailed um, chronicling of uh, Alpha Kappa Alpha through the years, their formation, their founders, and the various things that they were involved in in terms of human and civil rights, and then um, Paula Giddings' historical work as well. Now, one of the things that um, you know makes this project interesting and one of the things that um, differentiates Alpha Kappa Alpha and Delta Sigma Theta from other Greek letter sororities uh, that are historically black is that they share a common history. And that is the first black Greek letter sorority was Alpha Kappa Alpha. And there was a moment in their early formation where members of the organization sort of uh, decided that they had different visions about where they wanted to take the sorority, about what their um, political platforms, social platforms that constitute. And from that sort of uh, internal, um, the, the, the internal uh, sort of rupture, I guess you could call it, um, the second sorority formed, which is Delta Sigma Theta. So Delta Sigma Theta actually came out of the sorority Alpha Kappa Alpha. So, you know, for me, this made it very interesting because while Paula Giddings has written on Delta Sigma Theta and Marjorie Parker has written on Alpha Kappa Alpha, they both sort of have their own versions about how the split between the two sororities sort of came about. So me, as an American Studies scholar and as a cultural historian, I had to sort of, you know, look at these two versions and go back to the archives and rely on oral histories to really sort of disentangle what uh, the history and the rupture um, within the organization, you know, really constituted and what it meant at that time. So my book in particular, while, um, you know, both the Giddings book and the Parker books are solid historical uh, accounts of black sororities, again, what I try to do is to look at black sorority life from a more um, interdisciplinary perspective and to look at various lenses from which one might view black great better sororities. So it's not just a, a historical account. I'm looking at popular culture representation. I'm looking at rituals. I'm doing interviews not only with 
um, you know, younger women, but also with older women, women who are at various uh, points in sorority life from uh, pledges to um, older women who have been members for decades. And so, you know, by interviewing various types of women from different regions who pledged at uh, different universities who pledged before, um, we haven't even gotten to this yet, but there really is no official pledge process for black Greek letter organizations anymore. Um, now there is a more sort of a formal process wherein people come into the organizations. So I had uh, the um, the opportunity to talk to people um, during the pre-pledge moment um, and after the post-pledge moment when there was a ban on pledging uh, for all of the Black Greek letter societies. So what this book tries to do is just to put all these sort of interdisciplinary parts together to obtain a holistic look at black sorority life. Well, let's let's get into that topic that you just mentioned, the pledging process. Um, and although our discussion today surrounds specifically uh, your wonderful book, Disciplining Women, Alpha Kappa Alpha, Black Counterpublics, and the Cultural Politics of Black Sororities, you whet our appetite about your uh, article, which talks about one of the co- more controversial um, events that took place surrounding um, AKA. Um, your article, The Empty Space of Sorority Representation, Spike Lee's School Days, yes. in which you um, discussed the 1999, uh, I would say, colorism and um, Afrocentricity uh, issues. You want to talk about that? Yes. So you're referring uh, to the chapter I wrote for Gregory Parks and Tamar Brown's book, The Legacy and the Vision, where I take up school days in depth as a film, and I sort of compare his representations to a real-life account of a situation of um, not only something that people attributed to color distinctions, but also distinctions based on feminine appearance, and in particular, hairstyles. So, um, you know, just to sort of uh, reiterate a, a bit of what I said before, one of the things I wanted to do was to dispel the myths about black Greek letter organizations as depicted in the film, but to also pull out some of the problematic aspects um, that, in fact, you do see crop up in um, black Greek letter organizations, as well as, you know, all black organizations or in black life more generally. So the uh, example in which I think you're referring to is um, this moment where in a young uh, teenager who was to take part of the Alpha Kappa Alpha uh, cotillion, was uh, asked to alter her hairstyle if she were to participate. And so this particular woman, uh, her mother was a member of Alpha Kappa Alpha sorority. And uh, the woman, the young woman in question who was um, was hoping to participate in the AKA uh, cotillion, um, who, she had um, what many refer to as dreadlocks, um, but more specifically we refer to them um, as African locks or African twists. 
and so the sorority, uh, the particular chapter in which uh, was putting on the cotillion, felt that her hairstyle was not appropriate for the cotillion, and they wanted her to pin her hair up in a style which they felt was appropriate, and that would not um, emphasize as much the uh, the style in uh, the young woman's uh, opinion. So this case ended up uh, making headlines, right? So um, the young woman did go public, and it ended up in the papers um, in Southern California, and, you know, various cultural critics at the time sort of weighed in on the politics of skin color and hair. The young woman in question also identified as being brown skin um, and darker skinned, and so, you know, it wasn't just sort of a situation uh, perhaps of hairstyle, um, but many question whether or not the situation also had to do with color. And um, there were a lot of sort of uh, back and forth between um, members of the chapter, you know, cultural critics sort of weighing in about the politics of hairstyles in black communities, as well as the young woman herself sort of talking about how excited she was to become a part of this ritual of the cotillion, but was really sort of disappointed that they would even, you know, mention or suggest that she alter her hairstyle in any way. So I talk about that situation to bring up a sort of real-life example of the types of things that um, unfortunately do continue to go on in American life, in African-American life, and to say, you know, the point of my research on black big letter organizations is not to deny colorism, which many have done. You know, so there, oftentimes there's a stance to say, oh, that's just a stereotype, it doesn't happen, or, you know, the other sort of take on it is um, these organizations, they're so elitist, they're so wrapped up in color, skin color politics, etc., um, what I wanted to do was to intervene and say, you know, um, while modes of distinction does go on, that is, um, you know, at times problematic, that um, these situations need to be highlighted so we can develop new ways of thinking, new ways of seeing, new ways of acting, and not to perpetuate the types of stereotypes that are attributed to the organizations and to rather fight against such stereotypes. And so, you know, while this particular incident, I argue, um, you know, based on my research and knowledge uh, is absolutely not representative of the sorority as a whole, it is an example of some of the things that can go on in some chapters. Mm. Interesting. Well, let's talk about uh, some of the chapters, and I want to start by asking a general question, and, and you can speak from any chapter that you want, and that is, as an ethnographer, um, you have a responsibility to your subjects as well as to um, the academic community that you're uh, also writing for, and you mentioned in the intro that some of the women in the organization may may be disappointed with uh, some of the revelations that you make in the book. Uh, what are some of those? The revelations in the book or the things that they, the women might find disappointing? The things that they might find disappointed. 
Well, I mean, you know, we just touched on one of those things, which are, um, you know, which is a, an example of a situation within a particular chapter that some argued uh, had to uh, do with uh, emphasizing something that is perhaps, you know, or that I would argue is not um, something that someone should try to alter or emphasize, which is, um, you know, everyone has the right to sort of look the way they want to look and have the type of hairstyle that they want to have, and no one should have to to conform to a type of, you know, beauty standard um, that um, someone else thinks is uh, acceptable. And, you know, as the woman in AK himself said, it wasn't necessarily a matter of the hairstyle itself and that she had African locks or dreadlocks, but just that they wanted to, you know, they wanted her to pin it up in this particular style. But all of that notwithstanding, <laughs> the just bringing up the issue of color, um, mm-hmm. which I also talk about. You know, we were just talking about hairstyles, but I talk about how black Greek letter organizations stemmed from not only black social organizations such as the Links and the Guardsmen and the Girlfriends and these uh, older um, black fraternal organizations that also have a reputation for modes of distinction. They also sort of came out of uh, black secret societies, African secret societies, rather, in particular. And so these various origins sort of affected how um, the black Greek letter organizations would act and see themselves and, you know, form their own ritualistic uh, practices and cultural politics. And so when I'm talking about things such as pledging and hazing that um, has gone on in all secret societies, it is a topic, you know, so we're talking about Greek letter organizations, and they are secret societies. They're secret societies because they keep their practices secret. So if you're talking about that which uh, these organizations would rather not have in the public sphere, it is uh, obviously something that would upset members of the organization. So I felt that in order to add to the scholarship and, again, to have this holistic view of black sorority life, I really had to talk about all aspects of sorority life, even those uncomfortable things that some would rather one not talk about, such as pledge processes that uh, go too far and end up being representative of hazing that has harsh consequences for both pledges, members, and the organization as a whole. Mm -hmm. Let's talk about some of the complexity surrounding um, politics of respectability and um, the organization as a a, a counter-public force. In Chapter 2, you uh, write about one of the, uh, or begin at least with one of the with an episode um, that showed the force of the organization um, and their joining with other sororities and trying to um, institute or get a statue for Sojourner Truth along with um, uh, other feminist uh, statues. How does that illustrate what Alpha Kappa Alpha is about and how does it also um, point up a conflict? Well, I'm not sure what you refer to in terms of a conflict, but perhaps I can 
frame it in this way. So you're referencing the second chapter in the book where I talk about the sorority Sojourner Truth Monument Crusade. And this issue uh, came about because they wanted the likeness of Sojourner Truth added to uh, a feminist display of a of suffrage, a monument of suffrage that um, had the likeness of um, Elizabeth, uh, Katie Stanton, and Susan, Susan B. Anthony, and Lucretia Mott. Mm-hmm. And uh, the black sorority women wanted Sojourner Truth's likeness added to the monument because she is a significant part of American history, uh, and she contributed much to the suffrage movement as Alpha Kappa Alpha contributed much to the suffrage movement. They were really um, forerunners, along with Delta Sigma Theta, in the suffrage campaign, as well as anti-lynching and other types of activism uh, in the early 20th century. And so I begin the chapter talking about the Monument Crusade, um, and this is something that um, happened in the late 1990s, because I thought it was an example of uh, the concerns not only of sorority women, but the concerns of those doing cultural history. And that is to say that the lives and the uh, histories and the um, things that historically marginalized groups have experienced should be a part of the larger discussion of American history as a whole. And so this monument really represented for the women and for many others another example of black women being sort of written out of American history or their contributions not being acknowledged. And so I saw their monument crusade as uh, an example of not only their relevance in terms of more contemporary types of activism, but also an an example of uh, the moments wherein, you know, everyday people can sort of rally together to um, make change. And so, you know, it it, it took a long time, but um, there is now a, a Sojourner Truth um, monument. It's you know they they the, their crusade was not successful in so far as her likeness was never added to the suffrage mm-hmm. um, monument statue. Um, but a separate uh, likeness of Sojourner Truth was made and recently uh, uh, unveiled. And so their sort of persistent um, their persistent activism and um, you know shining a light on the um, injustice of not looking at black women's contributions to suffrage did end up in uh, creating some type of change, not necessarily the change that they had wanted, um, but it did end up making a difference. And so I'm not sure, you know, when you were sort of asking about, um, you know, uh, is this an example of of a conflict? Um, I, I think perhaps maybe one could see it as a contradiction mm-hmm, um, mm-hmm. and and a contradiction not just of black sororities but maybe just social um, social justice organizations in general right so that you can have an organization that may at times engage in problematic activities whether it's amongst individuals or particular chapters at a right. university but at the same time they're engaged in all of this incredible work in their communities and insofar as Alpha Kappa Alpha is concerned 
one of the things I talk about in this chapter is to sort of begin with the monument crusade and then go back in history to talk about their work in um, the anti-lynching campaign, um, introducing um, some of the early legislation, early anti-lynching um, legislation, their work with the suffrage movement, their work in health care and their Mississippi health care project that the women engaged in in the 1930s, where they were um, offering um, health care to rural residents in Mississippi and taking these medical clinics mobile around the South to um, help people of African descent gain health care. Um, they had things like the Negro Teachers Program, where they were training um, women of African descent um, who were teachers um, to be able to um, obtain state accreditation, um, you know, so that we have more um, black teachers in the school system. Another thing that I talk about in the book is their work in the civil rights movement um, with desegregation, funding uh, some of the first women to desegregate high schools and colleges, and their work with um, you know, putting an end to South African apartheid and their building of schools in Africa and their um, work uh, in transnational contexts in developing black uh, communities. And so, again, on the one hand, we have all of this incredible work that the women are engaged in, not only in their particular communities where the sorority chapters exist, but also globally in other parts of the world, because it is a global organization, although it began in the United States um, at Howard University in 1908. They have chapters in Asia, they have chapters in England, um, they have chapters in Germany, they have chapters in Africa. Uh, so they're engaged in activism all across the world, but yes, they're not perfect. Um, all organizations are made up of individuals who um, within those individuals there are contradictions in character, contradictions in practices. And so I actually find that I find those contradictions to be interesting and um, I find it to be representative of the reality of American life. Mm. So let's move to um, one other topic, and that is on the production of sexuality and femininity within the organization. Yes. Uh, you give us uh, several uh, snippets in your third chapter from um, step dances, um, and one of them is from 1998. I'm just going to read a little bit to you and, and ask you to uh, uh, give us something, uh, information about the production of sexuality. So okay. the, le the leader says, Nabisco got the crackers, the audience, uh-huh. And Campbell's got the suit. That's right. And then, but the AKAs got the Sigmas, the Omegas, the Alphas, and the Noops, these black uh, fraternities. That's right. Gonna take your man. You say that this competitive and um, competitive language among women um, is, is a, offers a set of problematics in which we could sort of understand gender and sexual relations. Can you talk about that? Sure. Well, one of my organizing principles is that the sorority acts as a counter-public formation. And as a part of that formation, they're engaged in a variety of types of cultural politics. And so by black counter-public, I'm referring to the ways in which the women access uh, public space 
to not only engage in types of activism that I previously discussed through deploying uh, alternative discourses about black womanhood, um, in addition to doing really sort of um, tangible types of political work in the public sphere. But another part of that counter-public formation is um, the fact that they are indeed presenting themselves in a public space that um, is oftentimes construed as a space that does not welcome them. So when I'm talking about step performance, I connect it to the idea of a counter-public as not only having uh, political possibilities, but having political possibilities that on the surface may not look political or may not seem to represent um, black cultural politics. And so you read a, a portion of the transcription from um, a particular step routine. One of the things I talk about is um, in the step routines, in the chants that go along with the performative movements, they are engaging in something that has been going on uh, in black life and is, um, you know, one of the things um, that many argue is um, distinct about black language performance, and that is the use of signifying and drawing upon various types of vernacular utterances to um, frame an identity and to conjure up shared understandings, shared cultural understandings. So within this chant, you sort of quote it from, there's lots of signifying going on, taunting. Um, in the book, I talk about um, with the black sorority step uh, chants that they do uh, during the performances, how these um, verbal exchanges that the women have call upon sometimes the politics of respectability mm -hmm. um, that the sorority expects them to engage in. But then at other moments, um, the step performance becomes a sort of carnivalesque experience wherein the women are also resisting the politics of respectability by being openly um, sexual and by, um, you know, what some might consider to be braggadocio, right? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Or, um, you know, some might consider it, um, you know, again, to be, um, you know, something that's problematic if you're sort of out in public and talking about how, you know, beautiful you are, or, you know, what a skilled stepper you are, um, how, you know, all the men are looking at me and don't you know it, that type of thing that might seem to reinforce gender stereotypes or maybe even reinforce um, the idea of um, black women as hypersexual, what have you. Um, I want to look at step performance and peel back these layers of meanings to think about the various ways in which one might look at these performances as accessing public space, as having a platform to feel confident, to be proud of who you are, of your skin color, of your womanhood, and an environment wherein um, you don't have the space to do that. So stepping, step performance becomes the platform wherein black women can gain that space to present a certain type of black womanhood that crosses, uh, you know, various types of sexual discourses and discourses of femininity. One of the things that I argue in the book is that um, women of African descent, um, historically as well as 
can temporarily uh, remain in a marginalized position. So to access public space and to present yourself as confident, as worthy, as someone who is attractive in a culture that tells you that you're not worthy, that you're not attractive, that the standard of womanhood is not what you are. Um, when these women are in public, um, you know, saying that that is not the case, uh, one might think of it in a variety of ways that go beyond what um, what might interpret uh, step chance to mean on the surface. Hmm. Uh, can you read to us a portion of the book to give us a feel of the of the writing? Sure. Well, uh, I'd like to perhaps read something that might sort of uh, situate how I came to the project and my interest in Black Greek letter organizations. And so I think I will read from the introduction. Great. My interest in writing about the history and culture of a black sorority stems from my memories of the spring of 1989 when my sister pledged the AKA sorority. During my years in college, I witnessed my sister, then a senior in college, and her fellow pledges wearing the same clothes and hairstyles, walking in unison during their pledge process. At the moment, I thought she was relinquishing her own self-identity, and I was ambivalent about what this meant. Later, I realized that she was in search of something very valuable, a sisterhood with a group of women from various classes, women with different personalities, ages, skin complexions, and ethnic pluralities who shared in common a gender identity and predominantly, as opposed to exclusively, a racial identity. Throughout this book, I refer to this work, an element of black sorority life, as the making of an engagement with cultural politics, that is, the site where culture and politics meet in productive, although certainly at some junctures, counterproductive ways. More than the celebratory acts of individuals and collective groups, cultural politics entails realizing the cultural aspects of political mobilization and the politics of maintaining cultural identity as a salient site to act from and cohere. That AKA sustains its organization through ethnic rights, collective mobilizations, and local and global activism locates the sorority as having additional cultural elements that are not prevalent in white sororities and fraternities. This is a lesson that observation of sorority cultural practices and politics, both personal and ethnographic, taught me. Although I have a family lineage of sorority and fraternity members, indeed, most of my family's social activities were in relation to my father's fraternity, Kappa Alpha Psi, I never fully evaluated the political and cultural uses of such organizations until my sister pledged in 1989. After her induction into AKA, I began to see a fundamental change in her, and I acquired a window into the organization. I also began to understand the richness of culture, pride, and activism that black sororities entail. I witnessed her achieving a sense of community with the rest of her sorority sisters as she actively served the black community. My understanding of the Black Greek Letter Organization extended beyond childhood memories of my father wearing the Kappa colors of crimson and cream to social functions and joining his fraternity members in Kappa sweetheart songs at yearly Greek conventions, conventions picnics, and other social occasions. I had not known as a child that those social and cultural events were also fundraisers for our community. 
I benefit from but did not initially see these events as a space for same-race interaction in a racially intolerant world, which allowed everyday people to feel comfortable in their own skin and to perform cultural work within the black community. Put another way, because of my young age, I was unable to articulate what meanings membership in such organizations entailed for its participants and the effect it had on a larger social structure. My understanding of black letter organizations as an adult, though, metamorphosed into something more complex than fragmented childhood memories. I began to see the black sorority as a way to reconceive the Greek letter experience and rethink the social as political and the political as being dependent on cultural practices that, when fostered appropriately, can begin the work of social, cultural, and political transformation. Beautifully executed, Deborah. Beautiful writing. Uh, that's one of the Thank passages you. that 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 I mean, just really um, leaped off the page. This experience um, uh, with your sister and your family. But Deborah, can you tell the listeners and me why you never pledged a sorority? Sure. Well, uh, you know, I mentioned that I have a, a lot of sorority fraternity members in my family, two legacies of Alpha Kappa Alpha and Kappa Alpha Psi. I did my undergraduate work at UC Santa Cruz, and the uh, campus did have Alpha Kappa Alpha as well as Delta Sigma Theta. And at the time when I was an undergraduate, it is not something that I thought about uh, doing. Um, so it just never uh, entered my mind. Um, and, I, you know, s some people do find that uh, surprising. And a lot of times people sort of ask me, you know, people who do work on Greek letter organizations are oftentimes members. And, in fact, I believe I'm uh, the only scholar to write a book on black Greek letter organizations who is not a member. Uh, so sometimes people find that surprising. But since I decided I wanted to research these organizations early on, I didn't make this decision when I was an undergraduate. You know, I, I was invited. I was, um, you know, sent a letter of interest. Um, but at the time, it just uh, wasn't something I wanted to pursue. And then when I started graduate school and I knew that this is what I wanted to write on for my dissertation, which, of course, later became a book, I felt that um, I needed to have some type of, um, you know, I, I wanted to present black Greek life in a very balanced way. And I thought, that if I was a member of one of these organizations, I would end up doing what many others have already done, which is to write sort of um, brag pieces for the organizations or feel that they couldn't talk about some of the more difficult aspects, such as color and class and pledging and hazing um, and all of the things that we've already discussed because they had this allegiance to mm -hmm. um, an organization or the organizations. And so I didn't want to put myself in the position where I would not be able to write with candor and I would not be able to present a, a, a balanced argument about the purpose of these organizations as well as the problematic aspects, too, 
And, you know, just that I was raised in black Greek letter organizational culture, um, just by having you know, members of my family in these organizations, I thought sort of already gave me a context to partially be an insider. But again, I needed to maintain enough of an outsider perspective to be critical about the organizations as well. Thank you for sharing that, Deborah, and thank you for sharing so much of your time today, which we have taken so much of. Um, so I want to ask. <laughs> I want to ask you um, to tell us if if you're working on anything right now. I am. My next book project is on sequential art. Uh, in particular, I'm looking at representations uh, of women of African descent in comic books graphic novels, anime, and comic strips. And so I'm working on that project right now and looking at um, not only representations of black women in sequential art, you know, graphic novels and comic books, but also looking at black women as producers of graphic novels and comics and as readers. So while my first book was, um, you know, a portion of it was based on ethnography, um, with this new project, I am doing some interviews, and it has a smaller sort of ethnographic component, but it really is more so an analysis of the cultural use of comic art uh, in American life and um, the different types of representations that uh, arise when you're talking about a, a gender minority and a racial ethnic minority and sort of how that's presented in these uh, various forms. So I'm looking at really popular comics like representations of black women in Batman and Robin, in um, in Wonder Woman, in Justice League of America, but I'm also looking at contemporary comics by black women that uh, many consider to be um, underground um, comics or alternative comics done um, by black women. So I'm um, looking at both um, popular mainstream comics as well as um, alternative representations in sequential art and thinking about how these various representations remark upon uh, American history at a particular moment and what they say about international politics, about how black womanhood is viewed not only in a national context but in an international context. I'm looking at why do people read comic books um, when they're reading and seeing images of black women in these forms of, um, you know, the graphic novel or comic strips or comic books, what types of meanings are readers and viewers making um, out of these cultural products. So um, I'm hoping that, you know, as a whole, I'll be able to think about reader, producer, and production and um, what it says in the larger context of um, reading practice and the use of popular culture in American life. And hopefully when that book comes out, we'll have another opportunity to speak with you about it. And I'm sure it'll be just as good as the first one. Thank you so much, Deborah, for spending time with us today on the New Books in African American Studies series. Thank you. We've been talking to Deborah Elizabeth Whaley about her new book, Disciplining Women, Alpha Kappa Alpha, Black Counterpublics, and the Cultural Politics of Black Sororities, published by State University of New York Press. Please go out and buy the book, 
and let us know how you enjoyed reading.